Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 142 for May 10th, 2009. I have been talking about Linux quite a bit lately. And if you decide to install Linux on your Windows computer, you have several options. There are three that are clearly the most popular. First would be to use the Ubuntu installer for Windows. Or to turn that around the other way, the Windows Ubuntu installer, uh, which is known as Wubi, as in W for Windows, UB for Ubuntu, and installer. Wubi. You can use Wubi to install Linux within the Microsoft Windows file system. The second most popular option is to create a new partition and to use the Grub bootloader to pick Windows or Linux every time you start the computer. And I'll stop here and tell you what Grub is. Grub stands for the Grand Unified Bootloader. Grub. The second option is considerably more frightening because it involves changing partition sizes on the hard drive, and that's the kind of operation that can fail spectacularly. And there's another good reason for a backup. The third option is downright terrifying because you'll actually blow away the operating system you've come to know, if not love, over the past several years, Windows, and you, you would then just install Ubuntu as your one operating system. Well, I had used the first method on a notebook computer and the second method, a separate partition, on the desktop. When it was time to upgrade Ubuntu from 8.10 to 9.04, I thought the notebook computer would be easier. <laughs> Boy, was I ever wrong. The whole process started absolutely normally. I knew there was an update, so I started the Ubuntu updater. It told me the current version was up to date, but a new version was available. So I read through the release notes and told it to go ahead and do the upgrade. That caused the upgrade tool to be downloaded. The process started. Everything went as normal, as expected. The updater told me that it would be removing 10 packages, installing 104 packages, and updating 933 packages. The expected process time was slightly less than two hours, and the download would be about 618 megabytes. Under normal circumstances, a 600 megabyte download would take less than half an hour, but I was asking for the download less than 24 hours after it had been released. The Ubuntu servers were more than a little busy. The process monitor told me I would have to wait 11 hours. And then it decided that was wrong. I'd have to wait 16 hours. Oh, wait, wait. I could wait three hours. So apparently the same person who wrote the Windows progress monitor has written the one for Linux. The problem, obviously, network congestion, swamped servers, and, oh, by the way, I was also doing a large local upload, so that would all contribute to the slowness. After a couple of hours, the process monitor told me it would be finished within a couple of hours. So about five hours after starting the download, the process was complete and the upgrades were being installed. 32 obsolete packages were removed, and then I was told all I needed to do was restart the system to complete the process. Easy enough, done, or so I naively thought. 
when I restarted the computer, Linux started just fine, and Windows started just fine. But I noticed that under Linux, I no longer had access to any of the NTFS drive folders. That's the Windows partition from within Linux. Obviously, everything was working because that's where Linux had to boot from. And I like having access to the NTFS files and directories from within Linux because it allows me to write applications to the Windows file system. This had worked just fine under Ubuntu 8.10. Well, I posted a couple of questions to Linux discussion groups but didn't receive any useful information. For example, I explained that I had used Wubi to install Linux in a directory of the NTFS drive and that I was dual booting. The first reply I received was, Do you want a dual boot? Hello, did you read my question? So this was a problem that obviously I was just going to have to solve on my own. The first attempt to fix the problem assumed that the upgrade might simply have gone awry. Grub was pointing to the directory C Ubuntu, so the easy solution seemed to be simply uninstall Ubuntu and reinstall it with Wubi. This raises the question, why is it that no easy, obvious solution ever works? I removed Ubuntu, confirmed that I could still boot to Windows, and then reinstalled Ubuntu with Wubi. Ubuntu still couldn't see the drive. The Linux gurus suggested that I should use a Linux utility to mount the drive at boot time. That would have worked if Linux could have seen the partition, which it couldn't. If an operating system can't see the drive, it's not going to be able to mount it. Well, then I thought I might just try allowing Ubuntu to launch its partition manager to see if I would be able to install Linux in a new partition. I had not been able to do that with the previous version, but... It worked this time. Repartitioning the drive, in fact, took only a few minutes. That seemed like it really wasn't quite long enough, but it had done what I told it to do, so I pressed on. And success was mine, once again, or so I thought. Grub could see both Windows and Linux partitions. Both operating systems were viable. I could boot Windows. I could boot Linux. However, the Linux partition was only 2.5 gigabytes, I didn't notice that at first, tried to add some applications, got an out-of-space-on-device error. I tried to use the utility within Linux to resize the partition. Unfortunately, because there was no space remaining on the device, the partition manager wasn't able to repartition the drive. Well, then I was stuck. Windows could see the partitions. The Linux installer could see the partitions. In fact, it offered to install Linux again, but it noticed that there were several operating systems already on the drive. So I had a bright idea. The Windows Disk Management Utility can delete partitions. I'll try that, I thought, knowing that it would probably cause me some troubles. And I was right. It worked. More or less. Mostly less. Now when I booted the computer, Grub failed. No Windows. No Linux. I had a great doorstop. But in a way, that's pretty much what I'd expected. But how do you get back to where you were from here? Fortunately, several months ago, I had made a copy of the Ultimate Windows Boot CD. And if you haven't done that, please do. I'll tell you more about the Ultimate Windows Boot CD in just a little bit. So I knew the problem was with the Windows Boot Manager and that the master boot record was probably pointing to the wrong location. 
So I booted the Ultimate Windows Boot CD and ran FDisk forward slash MBR. If you're old enough to remember FDisk, you know that's what does a low-level format of your drive. It wipes all the data on the drive. But if you use FDisk forward slash MBR, all it does is rewrite the master boot record. And that allowed Windows to boot again. So then I was able to boot the Ubuntu CD which could now see only a Windows partition, which is exactly what I wanted it to see, just the Windows partition. I told it to repartition the drive so I could install Linux in its own partition. This time I got the size right. Before you run any partitioning software, make sure you have backed up the hard drive that you're going to repartition. I hadn't in this case, but this was being done on my notebook computer, and any files that are on the notebook are also on the desktop, so nothing was really at risk. Changing the size of the partitions on a hard drive is a very big deal. Well, this installation, the third or fourth or maybe fifth, depending on how you count, went well. Ubuntu even asked me if I wanted to replicate any information from an existing Windows user account. Wow, that's a neat feature. I did that. And the notebook computer is now happy with both Windows and Linux. So what about the desktop system? Well, on the desktop, Ubuntu is in its own partition on drive D. Unlike Windows, Ubuntu can boot from any device. doesn't have to be on drive C. I had more space on D than on C, so that's where I had decided to put it. A couple of days after solving the notebook's problems, I decided to update the desktop. The process was relatively similar. This time, the procedure said it would remove 17 packages, install 149 new packages, and update 1,106 packages. The 784 megabyte download was expected to take about 15 minutes. The process continued as it had on the notebook computer, and the installation worked. In less than an hour, I had a new version of Linux that dual-booted properly. Once again, life is good. You'll find the full story on the TechBiter Worldwide website, complete with pictures. You can see exactly what I saw as I went through the process. www.techbiter.com Last week, Microsoft added Internet Explorer 8 as a critical update. It is a critical update, of course, but the question is critical to whom? A case could be made that it is more critical to Microsoft than it is to you, but I'll leave that up to you to ponder. If you don't want IE8, you can still deselect it from the list of updates to be installed. Now, that's assuming that you don't have updates set to be fully automatic. At some point, Microsoft will force the issue. So, do you download it now, or do you download it later? For me, the question is essentially moot. I had downloaded one of the late betas and liked the way it worked. Then it caused some problems for me, and I reverted to IE7. I have downloaded and installed IE8 on all of my Windows machines, but it really doesn't matter because my primary browser is Firefox. If I need to have two different browsers open, and there are good reasons to do that, my second choice is Google Chrome or Opera. So Internet Explorer really doesn't see daylight very often, at least on my computers. Which is not to say it's a bad browser. It isn't. It just doesn't offer me anything that I really need. In February, I wrote about installing IE8 and using it. And then in March, when IE8 was released to the public, I wrote about uninstalling it because of the problems with the beta version. At that time, I suggested waiting a while to install the new version suggested at the time a few months. 
well, a few months haven't passed yet, but now is probably the right time to go ahead and install IE8. Security is better. So if you use Internet Explorer, you probably should have version 8. You'll find some useful helper features, although Firefox is still king of the hill when it comes to add-ons. IE8 is faster than previous versions. It is reasonably compliant with the accepted standards. So, yes, if Microsoft hasn't yet forced IE8 onto your computer, you might as well just pick a time and install it yourself. Make sure that you use the manual installation process, though, and I recommend doing that with all applications. Use the manual installation process because programmers may make some choices for you that you wouldn't make for yourself. Read all of the dialog boxes. Make sure you're the one in charge of making all the selections. Earlier, I mentioned the Ultimate Windows Boot CD. When I had a problem convincing Windows and Ubuntu to cooperate with each other, I ended up reinstalling Ubuntu on a computer where it had previously been installed in a Windows NTFS directory. That's the story I opened today's program with, in fact. I wanted the new installation to be placed in its own partition on the hard drive, which was actually no problem. But I committed an error in giving Ubuntu far too little disk space. By the time I realized what I'd done, the partition containing Linux was full, and the Linux partitioning application didn't have the space it needed to make modifications. I also couldn't remove the partition. Knowing that it was going to create a problem, I used the Windows Disk Manager to eliminate the Linux partitions, but then the computer wouldn't even boot. I needed to rewrite the disk's master boot record, and because I had the ultimate boot CD for Windows, I was back in business about ten minutes later. That could have been a real disaster. The Ultimate Boot CD for Windows comes at a very good price. It is free. All it takes to create one is just a little bit of your time and some careful adherence to some directions. If you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, you'll find a link to the website that will help you build the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows. I recommend reading all of the instructions on the site before you start. Make sure you have everything you need. This is kind of the equivalent of reading a recipe before you start cooking Thanksgiving dinner. You don't want to get halfway through the process only to discover that you really need to go out and get a turkey. Reading all of the instructions is actually the most difficult part of the process, and it's not particularly difficult reading. Just use the website's instructions as you build your own copy of the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows. I started by downloading the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows installer. It's a 256 megabyte file, so the process will take you a few minutes or perhaps a few hours, depending on the speed of your downlink connection. You can make good use of the time while the file is downloading to find your Windows installation CD, preferably a full version, not an OEM version. Copy it to a directory on your hard drive. I decided to put mine on drive D in a directory called underscore winxpsp3. I use the leading underscore to keep the directory near the top of the list. When you're sure you have everything you need to complete the process, start the installer. You'll see the usual sequence of licensing screens and other information as the process begins. You'll then be asked to name the directory where the ultimate boot CD for Windows will be created. Be sure to create a directory without any spaces in its name. That's important. If you put spaces in the directory name, the process will fail. I created another directory on drive D. I called this one underscore UBCD4Win. Clever name. 
When the installation is complete, you'll be asked if you want the installer to download some information from the website so that it can use an MD5 hash for the main installer file and all of the files it contains to confirm that they all arrived intact. You might as well do this. It only takes a few minutes, and it is a good safety measure. It's a big download, and something can go wrong, so you want to make sure that all the files are in good order. Near the end of the process, the installer will display a series of URLs for locations that have useful information about how to install and use the utility disk. After that, the installation is complete, and you'll be offered the option to start the process of creating your new CD. If you choose not to run the process right then, the Ultimate Boot CD for Windows will be in the Start menu, and you can use it whenever you want. The first time you start the CD building process, you'll see some additional licensing information. You'll then be asked if you want the program to find the Windows installation files. You already know where they are, so don't have the program go look for them. It'll take a long time for it to find them much easier and faster if you just say no here and fill in the name of the directory where you copied the files from your Windows CD. Now, you need to specify where you want the CD image file to be created. This will be a file ending in .iso. I decided to have mine created in the same directory with the ultimate boot for CD Windows program files. Probably a better choice would be a new subdirectory or another directory entirely. It doesn't really matter, though. Just remember where it is, because you're going to need this file. This is the file that will actually create the CD. One of the options shown on the screen where you specify which directory you want the disk image to be created in is called Plugins. And the first time through, you can probably just ignore this. But when you build a new version a few weeks or a few months from now, you'll want to select this and take a look at it. It opens a very long list of utilities that are installed by the application. Most are selected by default. As you gain experience with the application, you might want to add some other utilities that you're familiar with or that you like, remove some that you don't use, and update applications such as virus scanners. But for the first time through, just skip that and click Build. The process of constructing the ISO file will take probably 5 to 10 minutes. This depends primarily on the speed of your computer's CPU and the speed of the disk drives. A lot of disk writing going on here. During this time, you will see a very busy screen, a lot of information scrolls by, and if you happen to have used an OEM version, you will see a warning. In fact, I saw a warning. It says that I'm using an OEM version of Windows to build the disk, and that this can be a problem. In my case, it was not a problem, because mine was a full OEM version from Microsoft, not one of those disks from Compaq, HP, Dell, or one of the other large manufacturers that fills the CD with a bunch of junk that you probably don't want. My OEM CD was manufactured by Microsoft, had none of that junk on it, so it was never a problem. During the process, you'll also briefly see some command line screens as the process performs tasks that can't be completed from within Windows. And when the process is complete, all you have to do is close the builder and then use Windows Explorer to find the ISO file that it just created. It'll be in the directory that you specified earlier in the process. Once you know where that file is, all you have to do is create the CD. This is pretty easy. If you have an application such as Nero, that's great. Just be sure not to use the copy function or burning a data disk. You want to create a bootable ROM. In fact, if you have Nero or another disk-burning application, double-clicking the ISO file will probably launch that application and put it in the correct mode.
When I burned mine, I selected a burning speed that is considerably lower than the maximum speed permitted by the drive. I wasn't really in a hurry to get the CD burned, and choosing a slower speed can produce a more reliable CD. And by the way, if you don't have an application that can burn an ISO image and create a bootable CD, there's a free application you can use. It's called Image Burn, and there's a link to the site where you can download that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And that's it. That's all there is to it. You now have a bootable CD that contains your copy of Windows and an outstanding collection of utilities that you can use to fix a lot of problems. In short circuits, a Dayton listener named Fred recently received a message that claimed to be from his Internet service provider. He was amused by the errors and thought, I would be too. And indeed I am. Here's the message. Dear Valued Client, this is to notify you once again sequel to our last mail to you that we are yet to receive the details below from you that will enable us to carry out upgrading process of your account. Important notice, harmful virus was detected in your account, which can be harmful to our subscriber unit. You are to enter your email address and password here and then they have a space in the email, to set in an antivirus on your user account to clear up this virus. We do need your cooperation in providing us with this personal information requested to enable us insert your account information into our antivirus machine for cleanup. We are sorry for the inconveniences this might have cost you. Failure to do this, we are sorry, your account will be deleted immediately to prevent the virus from harming our subscriber unit. Thank you, admin team. Wow. The Fisher wants to frighten the recipient into providing a username and password for the account. Needless to say, no ISP would ever need or want to do that. Even if you didn't know that, the message has lots of clues that it's a fake. For example, the word SQL in the first sentence. I suspect the writer was probably looking for a word like, oh, say, pursuant, but came up with SQL. There were commas where there shouldn't have been commas, no spaces where there should have been spaces, sentences ending in commas, randomly capitalized words, and then I rather liked this. They apologized for the inconveniences this might have cost, C-O-S-T, cost you. Obviously, they intended to use caused, but missed. (laughs) And then the sentence that begins with failure to do this, well, both badly written and an absurd threat. I I think this is the kind of thing that a really not-too-aware fifth grader might come up with. Now, in fairness to the fisher, I have to say this really isn't the world's dumbest fish. I have seen others that are worse. But it is surprising that somebody, anybody, would fall for something this blatantly fake. Sometime in June or July, I'll start letting you know what I think of Windows 7. The release candidate is available now for anyone to download. It's free. It is a 2.5 gigabyte download. It took about 30 minutes for me to download. I haven't yet bothered to burn it to a DVD because I will have to format the drive of the computer I install it on. And right now I can't spare an existing computer. I'll be able to do that later in the month. Reading the warnings that Microsoft has put on the release candidate reminds me of ads for medical breakthroughs. For example... No snores will eliminate snoring for most people in just three days. Possible side effects of no snores include insomnia, increased blood pressure, and the possibility that your head will explode. Do not use no snores while operating heavy machinery, driving, bicycling, walking, or sitting at a desk. You know, like that. 
So if you're thinking about installing the release candidate of Windows 7 on your primary home or office machine, think again. It seems to me that Microsoft is trying to avoid losing the war, but that the outcome is already clear. It is doubtful that Windows 7 will bring enough to the table for companies to replace Windows XP machines wholesale. As they replace machines over several years, they'll be upgraded to Windows 7, of course. But keep in mind that some companies are still running Windows 2000, and that's a real relic. The companies that might be most willing to upgrade are those that have... Vista machines. But that's not a very big number. Macs are showing up more frequently in offices, but the real winner, I think, in time, will be Linux. Linux can handle every basic office function needed. Email, calendars, IM, web browser for the Internet and intranet, terminal emulators for dealing with mainframe and mini computers. Those are the applications that office workers need. They're all the applications that most office workers need, and they are available for free on a Linux machine. Beyond that, more computing is moving to corporate lands. (laughs) Deja vu there. And to the Internet. Holding actions can delay the final result, but I don't think Microsoft can avoid it. Now, in the next year or two, we're going to watch General Motors shrink to be a much smaller company. Microsoft maybe should keep an eye on Detroit. Might give them a glimpse of their own future. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.